Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. Today's conversation will focus on quality improvement. This is the backbone of TIPQC, and it's a critical part of hospital work each and every day so that we can make sure we're providing the best care for moms and babies. TIPQC will be hosting a quality improvement boot camp for hospitals around our state very soon. Our guest today is actually the director of that boot camp. Let me introduce him to you. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is welcome, is happy to welcome Dr. Dupree Hatch to our show today. Dupree, you want to say hi real quick, and then I'll introduce you on a more formal note to everybody. Yeah. Hey, Scott, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, so Dr. Hatch is a neonatologist at Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, where he serves as the medical director in the neonatal intensive care unit and the director of quality improvement and implementation research in the division of neonatology. Dr. Hatch's research focuses on improving the safety, effectiveness, and efficiency of mechanical ventilation in the NICU. He has ongoing research work focusing on the epidemiology of mechanical ventilation and non-invasive respiratory support as well as work on developing novel methods to measure and decrease mechanical ventilation in the NICU. His favorite professional activity is helping to organize the work of the 11, that's 11, quality improvement teams in the Monroe Carroll NICU, along with a great group of quality improvement practitioners in the NICU. He also has three sons, and he's given me a very specific note to make sure I mention his very kind and flexible wife, who lets him do all of these things. So Dupree, welcome to our podcast today. I have really been looking forward to this and just uh, delving more into quality improvement work and specifically some of the stuff that you've done. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about quality improvement and to, to talk about, a little bit about our work. This is, uh, as I said, this is kind of the thing that, uh, that um uh, you know, uh, gets me gets me up in the morning and and um, and, and a love. So I, I I think I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So. Yeah. So we all need something that we it gets us up in the morning that gives us passion to our work, and that's that's really the first thing I wanted to, to just explore with you. What was it that drove you in this direction in your career to uh, to, to go toward quality improvement work? Tell us a, a little bit about that journey that you've been on. Yeah. Well, I think I, so I came into, I, I knew from a really early age I wanted to, to be in medicine. I ended up in neonatology, which is as far from what I would have ever thought I wanted to do. I grew up in a really small town and thought I wanted to go back and be the family physician. As a neonatal fellow, you you spend a, a fair amount of the first year trying to figure out what scholarly activity you want to, you know, kind of pursue over the next couple of years. And I, I remember looking around at 
lots and lots of, you know, I think I'm probably met with 30 something folks and basic laboratory research and clinical research. And, you know, I had a, a conversation one night on, on call, you know, 10, 11 in the morning, you know, at night with Peter Grubb, who was, who was the tip QC medical director at the time and spent years, you know, in, in that role. And he just said, you know, what do you, what do you think about when you, you go home? And so we, we had a really good discussion of, man, I said, I think about all the things that we could have done better. You know, I lay awake at night in bed thinking about why didn't this baby get the outcome they should have? And why didn't all the processes kind of fall into line and, uh, you know, to, to, that, that we as a, you know, as, as a medical community wanted to do for this, for this baby. And so we said, you know, you should think about quality improvement and, and, and really, and so I had not even, I, I don't think I even understood what it was at that point, but in some subsequent conversations after that, and then, and then really starting to understand what it was, I realized that, that, that is what I want to do. And that, that is the thing that, 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 uh, I think about when I go home. It's not basic science research. It's not all these other things, though they're all interesting. It was, you know, understanding processes and affecting them and getting the outcomes that we, that we all want when we, you know, go into, go into the medical field. The formal methodologic training really, you know, really, uh, you know, I, I tell people it really, it opened my eyes and to, I can't see the world a different way now, which was really, um, really a kind of a revelation and, and, and his, and was a blessing for me to, to have. So that's kind of how I got into the quality improvement came a, became an interest for me from really not even understanding what that was to, to where I am, you know, what I do now on a, on a nearly daily basis. So. Yeah, that's what I want to explore a little bit further with you. You, you like, you said the phrase, I can't see the world any differently now. Now that you've had this quality improvement lenses put on the training that you've done with this. So exactly, I want you to explain that a little bit more. How exactly does your, your knowledge, your understanding of quality improvement principles, how does it impact the way the NICU runs there at Vanderbilt and specifically you and your role overseeing that NICU, how do you use these principles every day to make sure that the babies are receiving the care that we know they need to receive? And there's very much, yeah. I think, a difference between the things we think we do <laughs> and the things we actually do and the things yeah. we need to do and know to do and the, the things we actually do as well. I'm proud and this, you know, I'm I'm hopelessly biased for the NICU at Vanderbilt, but also recognizing, you know, as a quality improvement practitioner that everybody can get better at what we're doing. And, and, and we certainly, you know, we certainly can in our NICU, though I'm, uh, there's a number of things that I'm proud of our teams for doing. You know, I think what I mean by I couldn't really see the world a different way is that through the formal quality improvement training, what, what I, one of the things that I've always that I took away from that was the, this lens of, you know, we think about we as people come into work each day and we think, we, you know, we think we're, we're caring for babies, but it's actually the way that I was kind of taught to, to look at this in quality improvement is it's actually the systems that, that are de defining the outcomes. And we're almost as the human beings that, that, that are providing care, we're almost a little bit of a cog in, in, in the wheel. And so, it's these things that we oftentimes don't understand that shape our behavior each each day that lead us to the you know lead us to the to do what we what we do do each day and and 
And so I think sometimes we focus on what can we do, what do we do every day to, to affect care that we provide for babies. But what I, what I was really introduced to the concept of and what really the more and more that I learned about it and the more and more that I, you know, actually tried to do quality improvement work, it, it, it became, it, it resonated more is that it's, it's the system around the people that, that oftentimes determine what happens to that baby in the, in the NICU. And, and by systems, I mean, you know, just the, the, oftentimes the little things The you know, the, we, we, we did some work. Uh, one of our, one of our, um, nurses did, did, did some work a few years ago, really looking at trying to decrease CLABSI rates. And she did a lot of work to try to understand what were the drive, what was driving the behavior? How do you actually get, you know, a CLABSI bundle up, right? You know, and, and get the nurses to actually do some of the behaviors. And one of the things she found when she actually deconstructed the process to something so basic that she, that she mapped out the steps in, in, you know, changing a, you know, changing a central line, she realized, Hey, the, we're the, we've got the foam in the room. The, the, the bedside nurse can't actually do what we're asking her to do, right? But we're, because the, where the foam is in the room. And so there was a very simple intervention of just moving the foam in the room and that overnight, you know, our processy, you know, our, our bundle compliance went up and it was, everybody's trying really hard each day to do the right thing. But oftentimes it's, it's the environment that we're in and it's the, it's kind of the systems that are around us that affect our behavior. And that, that was really, that's where I, you know, I have having seen that, having, having gotten some, some, you know, a little bit of education around that, but then having seen that in actual practice, how that works, I, I think that's where I can't see the world any any differently now and it's it's good because i think it, it gives you a different outlook but it's also yeah i see this i see this at home where the laundry basket is i'd like to blame that on the reason that i don't put my clothes in the, you know in, in the basket but you know so there's there's things like that that i just can't see the world differently but that's that's kind of the to answer your question that's kind of how i you know i can't you can't put the genie back in the in the in the bottle for me around that and and i and i think it's a good thing because it, it i try to spend a lot of time understanding processes I mean, we certainly, certainly there's always, you know, and processes change a lot. So there's always things to better understand because the, the, the things around, you know, our processes change daily. So. Yeah. So you mentioned one tangible change that was created in the NICU there through understanding processes and systems and mapping out how we do something. Can you share with us something else that has occurred? through uh, understanding of, of what quality improvement can do and how it can empower people to, to change and improve care? Yeah. So one of my favorite examples, and this is from work that this was actually, you know, I, I had the, you know, I was, I was supported early on in, in faculty here at Vanderbilt to get formal quality improvement training through one of the courses at, uh, at Cincinnati uh, Children's. And at that time, there weren't a ton of really formal avenues to receive quality improvement training. Cincinnati Children's was one of the, you know, couple. And, and since then, there's been a huge growth in those. So, but, so, so a lot of my training came through, through that course. And I, you know, as part of that course, we, you have to do a kind of a mentored project, you know, quality improvement project. And, uh, you know, my, my passion from a research interest is, is around mechanical ventilation and understanding that and really understanding Again, some of these system factors that drive our behavior. And so, you know, we, the project I went through the Cincinnati course with was to try to Im- improve our use of, kind of increase our use of, of volume targeted ventilation. In the NICU, there's more 
opinions than there are actually evidence-based strategies around mechanical. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The heresy debris. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. I'm sure, I'm sure no one will agree with that. But one of the things that, one of the few things I think that, that actually has some, some fairly decent evidence behind it in terms of how to ventilate preterm babies is, is the use of volume targeted ventilation, which is where you, instead of, you, you target a certain ventilation, or excuse me, a certain volume instead of, you know, a pressure and, and, and under the, you know, under the kind of physiologic principle that it's volume that tends to hurt lungs and, and, um, Instead of pressure, though both of them can have some effects. So, so we were trying to improve our use of volume target ventilation in that project. And one of the things we, you know, we collected a lot of baseline data at a very granular level to try to understand our practices. And one of the things when we were looking through that, those baseline data, we saw that our clinicians were, were using this really odd ventilation mode on, on our ventilators. It was a mode that nobody in their right mind would use purposefully. And it was a, a mode that, you know, actually it was an unsynchronized mode, which for, for those that are, that may, may not ventilate babies every day, the unsynchronized mode is one that doesn't really, the synchronized mode, it tries to give the baby a breath when the, when the baby's want, wanting to breathe. And so it's a, you know, it's a more, probably a more comfortable, you know, thing for the baby. And today, with the ventilator technology we have, there's really not a good reason to use an unsynchronized mode in the vast majority of, of cases. But we noticed that our practitioners were, were, were using this mode. And so as we as we actually went to the ventilator and, and walked through with right after we one of these events happened, we we kind of walked through the process of with one of our practitioners and and. And it was, we realized that, you know, you had to do three or four clicks in the ventilator and kind of dial down to get to the mode that they were trying to get to, which was the right, what we consider to be the evidence-based mode. And so, you know, we, we not trying to improve our use of volume target ventilation, but, but trying to get rid of the use of this mode that we just kind of found, we changed the ventilator screen, the screens around a little bit just to make it easier to get to the mode that people were trying to get to. And overnight, our use of volume targeted ventilation went up about over, I think, I think it doubled from a, you know, 26, 27% to up in the sixties, I believe. We didn't do that on purpose. We just kind of, you know, serendipitously fell into it. But then as we drilled down on why in the world did that happen? There was a number of people that realized that they were going to, that, that there was an opportunity for them to make a mistake by to try to get to the right mode. And when we made it easy for them to do the right thing, then they started using it. And so I think that was, a, that was, that was part of one of the things that I've seen along, you know, on this path that makes me realize that it's oftentimes these things that, you know, you don't even realize in your environment that kind of uh, shape your behavior. And so we were able to, you know, in that project, it's, it's probably one of my favorite quality proof projects that we've done here. We were able to get up to where we use volume target ventilation, you know, in the population that we want to. In you know 99% of of kind of ventilation hours, um, and so that's that's one of probably one of my favorites because I it was you know I, I learned a lot about the system in that in that process, but that's one of our examples of yeah, there's all these things around us that shape our behavior that you have to understand first before you can actually change the change the outcomes. So there's a lot to understanding. I think just human psychology and the culture of the place that you're in as you're trying to make these changes, which I think is a, a fun part, especially with, with implementation of something. 
So I'm thinking of, of somebody listening to, to this, listening to this discussion that we're having, and they're intrigued by these quality improvement principles and trying to, to change something in, in their neonatal intensive care unit or wherever it is they might work. But maybe they've had they've not had the formal training like you have had to, to, to be able to do this. What is some advice that you would give somebody who's like, hey, you know, I've got an idea. I've seen something that's happened in our NICU. I think we could improve care here. Are there some like guidance, some main principles that you would tell them that they needed to to use to investigate this or to try to create change where they work? Most people that are doing quality improvement are, are, are doing it on their own time. They're not being paid for it. They're doing it really because they care about the outcome. And so it's a, you know, it's a group of people that it, it's a good group of people, right? Because they're giving of their time, and their resources to, to do something to, because they care about the outcomes. I, and I think that's, while that's one of the, to me, one of my favorite things about being, being involved with quality improvement teams, it's also one of the hardest things, right? Because most of us that are tasked with doing quality improvement is I think that one of the most important things about improving a process is you have to understand the process first. And so I think what, what does that, what does that mean? It, you know, it, it means getting everybody that's involved in the process, getting their, getting their view on how the process works, right? So all of our 11 teams are multidisciplinary, you know, and I think, you know, in, in, in populations that, you know, take care of older patients, actually having patients involved in the quality improvement teams is, is important. It's different, a little bit different for us in the NICU. I think parents can be that, you know, it can be the, the eyes and ears of the patient. But I think so understanding the problem and, and the process is important. That's probably to me the first step. And, you know, I, I see and I did this as an early QI practitioner. One of the first things we want to do is to come in with an idea of an intervention to fix a process. And I think oftentimes when you drill down and understand the process, you realize that the intervention you came to the process with is not the thing that's actually driving the, the process that you want to fix. And so I think my first advice would be if, if you're interested is find, you know, seek out opportunities to get formal training in, in quality improvement. And if, if you can't do that, I think when you approach it, something you want to fix is understand understand where it breaks and understand what the process looks like. Cause I think, I think understanding that is kind of the key to then fixing it, but also the key to ensuring that you don't make anything worse while you're trying to make things better. Um, and that, uh, and so I think understanding the process is probably the most important step to doing good quality improvements. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and I think what we can do is share some resources in our show notes uh, for people who might be interested in, in, in reading a little bit more about this, the, of course, Institute for Healthcare Improvement is one of the first organizations that comes to mind. We will have that link in our show notes. So World Health Organization also has a nice little quality improvement toolkit that is used around the world to introduce people with some concepts of quality improvement and then how to begin the identification of a project and how to implement that project as well. Dupree, what others can you think of that we might be able to share? If we're having this conversation 10 years ago, I would I would say that the the resources for someone who wanted to study on their own are would would not be near what they are today with the, with the expansion of quality improvement. But, you know, as you were as you were saying, I mean, it's really it's really become the vehicle by which we can affect, you know, affect change in our in our units. And so, you know, I think yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. The IHI has some very good resources. Many of the quality improvement collaboratives 
have resources. Uh, Vermont Oxford Network has has re- resources. Especially Don't forget specifically, see now. I mean, if you see, come to our website. We've got hold lots on, of I'm, I'm there. getting there. So, <laughs> uh, I was that the next thing I was going to say was the statewide collaboratives, right? So, the, you know, Tennessee. The, so, TIPQC certainly has resources. CPQCC, the California collaborative, have, has a number of resources, and there there are others. But I, I think from a NICU or neonatal specific thing, the the neonatal collaboratives are really a good source. Of education, but also, uh, you know, I think one of the things about quality improvement that I've always that's always helped me as I, you know, as I continue to learn about it is is seeing project examples and seeing because because oftentimes the same problem I have in my unit is somebody you know across the state has the same thing, and so seeing well that's an interesting that's an interesting way to understand the problem. So I think I think looking at the neonatal collaboratives, the statewide collaboratives, Vaughn. Not only is it a good opportunity for educational resources, but to see how other folks have, have approached the problem. There's also, you know, there's a lot to be gained from quality improvement literature has really, has really grown. And so the number of journals who published high quality, quality improvement reports has really grown. Pediatrics has a nice section. There's three or four each month. And so I think looking at following some of these really well done quality improvement reports that are coming out in the literature, is also another way to to kind of think about it, ways to approach a, a project, and so those are good resources. The other thing I'll I'll say, and this this to me was the the most helpful thing is, you know, I think is having some mentorship to help you walk through a project, and so I think if for folks who who are new to quality improvement or who having someone at your center who or maybe not even at your center, but but who you know in, in kind of your sphere of in, influence who has done quality improvement and can be a bit of a coach to you, right? And and that may only be, you know, a phone call once a month for an hour to say, hey, we're at the part of our project where we're trying to make aims. Could you help me talk through, you know, the aim that I've got? I think that that was one of the most, in my quality improvement education, that was one of the most helpful things is having somebody to to bounce stuff off of and say your aim could be tightened up here. And if you, if you thought about making this a positive aim instead of a negative aim, you're going to get better buy-in from your, the folks around you. I think having a, you know, finding someone to help you walk through first project is also really helpful. Yeah, that's great. And that, that's certainly the role of the, of the PQCs. If you see that that's what we do across the state as we work with, with hospitals that are seeking to, Capri, somebody that's been listening to this podcast so far, I can see their wheels turning. They're like, hey, I, I want to learn more about quality improvement. And TIPQC is here to sort of hold our hand, help us into this process, put projects into place, make things better at the hospitals where we work. So TIPQC has this quality improvement boot camp that we're getting ready to, to launch. It's in December. Not only are you going to be there leading uh, the discussion and teaching people about quality improvement principles, but there's this fantastic nurse practitioner who works closely with you, uh, Eva Dye, who's going to be there helping out, uh, Krista Sala, who's a respiratory therapist, who's been involved in a lot of these projects. Somebody that's coming to this boot camp, what are they going to learn from all of these uh, experienced people who've been doing quality improvement for some time? Yeah, so we what we what we try to do in this in this boot camp, it's not quite day long, but it starts in the morning and ends about one or two in the afternoon. What we try to pack into that six or seven hours is is a lot of the really high points of what what walking through a quality improvement project should look like. What are the important aspects of it? 
And so we, you know, we, we, we kind of start the morning with how do you make aims and, and, and make sure that you're kind of defining your, your outcomes early as a, a, you know, as a team. We talk about how do you build theory to, to actually identify what, what the drivers of your processes and your outcomes are. So we, we talk about some of the tools for that. And then we, we spend the second half of the day really talking about how do you test things? What does that mean in quality improvement? Testing is certainly different in quality improvement than it is in research. So what are the kind of mechanisms for doing that? And, and then we, we spend the last part of the day talking about how do you analyze data? So da- data and we give folks some resources. That's oftentimes one of the most, in my experience with, with folks who are new to quality improvement, that's the data and how to analyze it and how to, to, you know, is one of the most uh, intimidating things. So we, we spend the last, you know, hour, hour and a half or so kind of walking through how do you look at data for quality Im- improvement? And so we really try to give, give folks a little bit of a, a, a taste of kind of all the things from the beginning to the end of a, a you know, of a, of a quality improvement project. And there's a, a lot of that. There's a little, I'd say about half to three quarters of the day is didactic. And then the other quarter to third of the day is, is, is us working through some examples. Very early, we realized it was really important for our leaders to have good quality improvement methodologic training. But then it became increasingly important for the for members of our teams to really understand some of these principles. And, and so we've, the last couple of years, we've, we've run several of these and we have, you know, 50 or 60 folks locally who've been, who've gone through one of these. And I think that's really expanded the, the number of folks who, who are doing, I would say, high quality, quality improvement in, in, in our NICU. And, and it's been a, it's been a fun thing for us to get to do. So. Yeah. So this is fantastic. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm excited that TIPDC is getting to partner with your team and, and put this on. For those of you, of you who are listening who are in Tennessee, this event is going to be December 2nd, okay, December 2nd, 2022. It's going to be at Centennial Hospital. It's going to be run by Dr. Hatch and his team uh, who are experts in quality improvement and can impart upon you some of the basic tools that you need to begin to do quality improvement at your own facility and own hospital. You can get more information about this if you go to the TIPQC website. That is www.tipqc.org. Dot org, and you can uh, sign up to and register uh, for the course there. Dupree, as we wrap up, is there any other words of wisdom for those that have been in doing quality improvement for a while? Is, is 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 patience? I think that was the thing I didn't appreciate when I started. These our systems didn't they didn't get this way overnight, and it, they we don't fix them overnight. So I think uh, taking a long view, uh, you know, is and uh, and realizing that we're going to fail a lot along the way, and that's important to learn about our system. Yeah, yeah, we learn something from every failure, don't we? Exactly, yep. So you've got a, the ability to put a message on a big, gigantic billboard on I-65, I-40, that thousands and thousands of people are going to see every day, every week, every month, driving uh, through Nashville. What's your message? What are you going to put on that gigantic billboard to, to Give his words of wisdom to uh, to the community, uh, either about this topic or just about anything. I was introduced to something that's called the, the fundamental attribution error, and I had never heard of it before. And it's and I'm going to butcher it, but it's it's uh, it's this you know out of kind of social psychology, it's this error that we oftentimes make of of seeing something that goes wrong and blaming that on something inherent to the person and. 
but then also, but then seeing something go wrong in our, you know, in our everyday life and, and being able, being able to see, you know, give ourselves the grace to, to, to see the system, you know, to see the things around us that, that drove our, our behavior. And I think that's one of the things that I wish that everybody had that lens. And I didn't have that lens before somebody, and it's still, I struggle with, with having that lens because I think it, it makes us so much more compassionate to, to understand what the folks that are around us who, who do things that we don't really understand are, are, are going through. And I see that, I see that in our, you know, in our everyday, in our safety things where we think about, well, how, how did this thing happen? And it's, we're so quick sometimes to chalk it up to human error, but it's really, it's oftentimes there's things, everybody's trying to do the right thing. And, uh, it's, it's the things around us that, that sometimes put us in positions to do, you know, to make decisions that are, that are the wrong thing. But I think, I think if we understood each other, there'd be a lot less uh, of this of the strike that we sometimes have. And I think I think if if I think about my own life, one of my three sons went through some very serious health issues a couple of years ago. The number of things that we that we faced that I had no clue we were going to face is really eye opening. He's doing great now, but it but it also opened my eyes to realize that some of our families in the NICU are going through the exact same things and. As much as we try, we'll never be able to understand the things that our parents and our families are going through. And so that, that, and I think, I think giving, giving all of them grace and recognizing that the, the stressors and the systems around us are, 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 are why we get into the, the messes we sometimes do. I think that's the thing. That's a lot of words to put on a billboard, but that if no, if give, could, give someone grace today. That's it. Yeah. Give someone there grace you go. today. That's what it is. There you uh, go. And with that, right, I think yeah. we will conclude and I hope everybody listening remembers that. Give someone grace today, uh, wherever you're at and wherever you're listening from. Thank you for joining another episode of uh, PC's Healthy Moms, Healthy Baby podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.